This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... RPG terminology. Swedish North Pole balloonists. More yellow mythos. And occult Buenos Aires. Over the Edge, the twisted RPG of counterculture conspiracy, weird science, and urban danger. Reimagined for its third edition by its original creator, Jonathan Tweet, for a new generation of role players. New narrative rules improve storytelling. New character traits propel drama. Every conspiracy, every character, and every location is given a fresh new twist. The Edge is the weirdest city in the world. Get into trouble. Question your place in the crazed multiverse. Take a draft of madness. Transcend mortal limits. Fight a baboon! Along the way, you might find out who really controls humanity. Unless, of course, you've been working for them all along. Fast dramatic character creation, laser focused on creating dynamic protagonists. A simple 2 die 6 resolution mechanic. Inject shocking unexpected outcomes through good twists, bad twists, and twist ties. Three strikes and you're dead. But until you're risking that third strike, you can safely take big risks, electrifying gameplay with dramatic, exciting moments. Plan your trip to the island you only think you remember by visiting at Atlas-games.com slash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. Please remember Liberty is job one. Disarmament means peace. It's polite to speak English. And of course, paranormal activity is perfectly legal. Thank you for your consent. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, look at that. The GM has prepared a handout, and it's a handout of fun terms to be used in the gaming hut because Patreon backer Ethan Schoonover has asked... I may have missed the moment where you stepped up to the RPG church door and nailed up your list of improved gaming terms. And take that, gaming pope. But if I didn't, and these have just slipped into conversation, then I'd love to hear more about such cartas vocabulary as F20, GMC, and any other terms of art that you've created, modified, or revised. A big ask from Ethan, but fortunately, um, I don't know that we've done an awful lot because most of the vocabulary of gaming has most vocabularies do that have evolved organically with the hobby works pretty well. It's just that Robin and I, well, we see clearly, we see better than others. That's all. That's all it is. Yes. Just our, our, our terms better. are our, our terms are pellucid, where where yours are are merely mundane. So F twenty, uh, I did make up. I wanted an umbrella term to describe Dungeons and Dragons and all of its relatives on the family tree. So D20 is often used, but of course the actual D20 license only covers one of the many editions of D&D. It uh, uh, refers to third only and everything that was adapted from third, including Pathfinder. So if I want a term to, you know, that has Pathfinder in it and also has D&D 5 and D&D 1. And, and all the OSR clones. Most of the OSR clones. And 13th uh, Age. Yeah, 13th Age. Uh, which is a D20, but not everything is a D20. So I came up with F20, and the F is for fantasy, and the 20 is, of course, for the 20-sided die uh, that you roll to hit in all of those uh, games, because uh, I find myself often wanting to talk about the sort of whole set of cultural motifs around uh, D&D and D&D-derived uh, games yes. uh, in a nice, easy way that doesn't Require me to say D&D and D&D derived games. Which I think in publishing they just call D&D fantasy, don't they? Or do they just call it fantasy now because the world has fallen? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, um, but, but, but it used to be that D&D fantasy was clearly differentiated by the publisher from, and not just as gaming fiction, but as sort of, this is all fiction that sort of works for D&D, and this is all fiction that is exciting and fun. That, that's the publisher said that, not me. I'm sure that there's lots of great D&D fiction, he said. Right. Yes, because that, that, again, raises the definitional question, are the Pathfinder novels D&D fiction? Yeah. <laughs> not if you ask Watsy. Not if you are. ask Watsy. And so, yeah, then, so they, they, they probably now just call it fantasy or uh, some kind of thing. But, uh, but, for example, you know, Tunnels and Trolls would fit 
generally in the F20 rubric, despite being uh, predating uh, D20, uh, the, the, the license. And, but it's got the same sort of notional universe, whereas RuneQuest, uh, Glorantha RuneQuest at least, would not, because A, not only does it not use a D20, it uses percentile dice, but also its fantasy world is a specific enough thing that it is outside the F20 consensus, right? Right, Although exactly. even there, you can still have princesses and trolls and, and things like that, but they're usually different. Right, and of course, there's uh, if you want to get all taxonomic about it, you know, each, you can then start to divide up what the differences are between all the different versions of, of F20, but that's not about having an umbrella term, that's about making distinctions, so that'll have to be somebody else's terminology, uh, not mine. Right, get, get your own podcast, other terminology people. Right. Um, the other one that, uh, Ethan mentions is GMC, uh, which is, uh, not invented by me and not even close to new. So, uh, that stands, uh, for game moderator character, uh, or game master character. And it was Tadashi Ahara of Different Worlds magazine who uh, initially started to promote that as a better alternative to NPC. Uh, it is not fully acquired universal uh, currency so sometimes you have to distinct you know show what you mean by uh yeah. when you say gmc but uh i certainly and and jonathan tweet uh employed that in over the edge and i think that was the first uh major uh, role-playing game to to use it and i uh, also employ it in my own games whenever i can get away with doing so and the reason i prefer it uh, is that uh i think that non-player character is a crummy definition because it defines something by what it isn't. So why don't you define it by what it is? That is a character portrayed by the game master. And also the game master is a player. Uh, Yes. They're just not a common or or garden player. Right. Now, I actually prefer to call everybody at the table, including the GM participants, because uh, I think that makes certain rules text clearer. Right. Because you do want to distinguish between the uh, almost every game uh even a drama system, even Hill Folk, changes the set of powers or the role of the GM versus everybody else. And so uh you need to be clear whether by player you mean the players except the GM or the players including the GM. And for the latter, I prefer participant, but that's not right. probably something that's ever come up uh on this podcast. Where, where we talk loosely and extemporaneously. Where we don't write a lot of rules text, quite frankly. Um, this brings me to the other thing that I prefer. I prefer game moderator to game master, uh, because, uh, the original dungeon master from, uh, D&D and other F20 games, uh, is fun and evocative. But, uh, once you, uh, genericize that and call it game master, I figure you might as well also uh, de-hierarchicalize it uh, in a way that... And also uh, ungender it. Yes. Uh, although uh, the, the genderedness of master is sort of fuzzy anyway, because, you know... Well, I mean, yeah, it's like actor in that it's a, it, it's a role, not a specifically yeah. masculine yeah. title, but it has more connotations than just the person in charge of telling you what the bugbears are doing. Let's put yes. it that way. Um, and so, uh, and moderator implies that uh, your uh, task is to uh, sort of connect all of the fun of everybody at the table and keep things moving and uh, that you were there. It's because Game Canadian would just be confusing. Right. That you were there as a facilitator of, of the fun and the action rather than that you are the uh, authority figure. Although, of course, even even moderating requires a certain amount of, of uh, subtle uh, authority, as, as we all know. So uh, I've uh, always kind of preferred that and uh, and uh, stick with it. Now, Ken, you are uh, an aficionado of the uh, specific uh, genre flavor term to replace yes. GM, and uh, perhaps you should speak up in favor of that. I mean, I, I speak up in favor of that because anything that puts a, a player of a game in mind that the game is special and the game is different and the game is about itself, uh, it can only be to the good. So uh, as long as it's not ridiculous, and given that I grew up and cut my teeth on Keeper, short for Keeper of Arcane Lore, as a completely legitimate title for a GM, you can tell that my boundary... And, and put your hands up, listeners, if you knew that that's what it was short for. Right. Yes. Um, uh, Call of Cthulhu, I, I did know what that was short for. So obviously my boundaries are farther out there. But I think that if you 
uh, come up with a good name as opposed to just coming up with one to be random. So there's no reason to replace game moderator or GM with um, arbitrator if you're just playing the same stupid game that everybody else is playing. But if it's a game like, say, a, a game where you are um, uh, either playing, you know, interstellar judge advocates, maybe arbitrator would make sense, or you're playing a game of um, uh, market futures in which you're uh, shadow runners, but you're manipulating the stock, and that's the reason you're doing it. Maybe arbitrator would make more sense there. But, for example, when I came up with director for Nice Black Agents, with which conveys both film directing because it is a cinematically or inspired game and the director of some shadowy agency, I knew that I had the perfect title. So director works really, really well and adds flavor in a way that a standard or anodyne GM would not have. Again, there are, it is possible to do it wrong. It is possible to make virtually every creative decision wrong. That doesn't mean don't make a creative decision. That means think about it. Right. Because ultimately a new term that, uh, that one comes up with, is only of great value if other people start to use it too. And the challenge right. uh, with, you know, if you have a different name for GM in all of your different core books, uh, the question is, do people actually use it and say it? Or do they have to mentally translate whatever you're, you know, if, if you're the, uh, the the ostrich whacker instead of the, the GM, does everybody around the table say ostrich whacker? Do, when you're reading the rules, do you have to mentally translate that into... Uh, in, back into GM or not. So on the other hand, ostrich whacker's got a good anagram or acronym. <laughs> if you're the owl, then that, that tells you something. Exactly. That's, that's certainly the point of view of the ostriches. And so that brings me to one that I wish I had, uh, had more success in, uh, getting uh, widespread use of, and that is substituting series for campaign. So, uh, campaign, even in D and D where, uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson first started uh, using, uh, the idea of, you know, a string of adventures with continuing characters and continuity obviously is very much borrowed from their wargaming roots and yeah. makes sense in a war game. It doesn't even really make sense in D&D, which is rarely about an extended military campaign. And it certainly doesn't make sense in anything else, <laughs> else, uh, you know, any uh, investigative campaign or something that's based on, uh, you know, character interaction or or. It doesn't make sense in Star Trek, which is non-militaristic. Um, and so I uh, use series because, of course, that's a much clearer analog. It's, it's a bunch of different connected adventures with the same characters. It's much more like a television series or a comic book series than it is like a campaign. And also the fact that you're doing a, the thing serially makes it a series by definition, regardless of whether it's like a TV series. <laughs> yes. And and if you can do something where the definition is contained in the word, you know, after that you can knock off and have a sandwich, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that has, uh, I find myself having to translate that more because, uh, it, and, and I think that's the biggest remaining chunk of wargaming culture in the assumptions of role-playing that never should have been there in the first place. So, Ken, uh, that, that's the list of things that I could think of that are specifically game terms. There are a couple of other Cardus terms that are not about games, but are there other... Uh, uh, do you have particular uh, game terms that you've tried to bend, fold, spindle, and or mutilate? Um, like you say, my creativity has mostly been put into the individual game in the sense that you know, give the individual game its own terminology that, that, that works. And, and things like your, um, you know, uh, tactical flashback as a terrorist that I then borrowed from Spock agents because that has a, has a fun, it has the word tactical right in it. So it, it, it has to be fun. But if we use that technology in a different game, then maybe you'd change it. Uh, if, if there was a, a gumshoe game that was about, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily use it even if you put it into Yellow King because, Except for in the wars, maybe, but it would, it would send the wrong message. It would feel wrong in, in, in play. And so that's, uh, that, that's where my aesthetic is. It's not so much what are we doing at the table or what are we doing in terms of general terms for the, for general art. We don't have that much stuff. I mean, I, I guess if we had thought about it a little harder, you and I could have fixed the whole question of, you know, the word immersion. Uh, which causes fights even now, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll fix railroading. <laughs> right, yeah. The, well, we're, we're still fighting a long, lonely war against railroading, yes. uh, the, the, the term. But again, I mean, I'm still murdering anyone who uses uh, uh, begs the question incorrectly. 
And that explains the pile of corpses <laughs> and why I'm never convicted. Yes, well, a, a, a jury will never convict you. But speaking of doomed fights. <laughs> so certainly um, I'm a maker up of, of uh, terminology when I try to analyze things. So if you want to see, uh, you know, all sorts of other terms, you, you can look to uh, Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering uh, from Steve Jackson Games, which I wrote in the 90s and is coming back into print and even as an audio book of all things, or... Who's going to read Robin's Laws? Is it you? Uh, no, it's someone else. So, well, I don't know. They'll have to listen to the podcast to get my, my distinctive Canadian look. Exactly. I mean, I, I will feel I will feel like bridling at that advice if I don't hear it coming in your calming <laughs> yes, tones. I, yes, if it's not all gentle and soothing like... Exactly. I'll be like, who the hell do you think you are? Hamlet's hit points and uh, uh, beating the story are also full of terms that I made up to describe uh, things. And sometimes I will uh, borrow an existing term and bend it slightly. Sometimes I'll have to think up a new term. Thinking up terms is hard. Um, and, of course, we've got other Cardist terms like fun ruiner, uh, which, of course, is right. the uh, person who knows the actual facts of a supposedly paranormal situation that would uh, reveal it as boring so that we acknowledge the fun ruiners and then move on. And, and Elliptony itself, itself, of course. Of course. Um, which we've defined several times, but since we're defining things, Ken, before we go... Uh, elliptony is... Uh, speaking of things that there was a need for, there was no general term that referred to all fun, crazy things people think. So there was no term that covered astrology and polywater and magic and uh, Casper Hauser and Kennedy assassination conspiracies and fairies and all the stuff that ain't true, but that makes life better and more exciting. And so I came up with the term elliptony based on paranoid ravings of a nationalist Russian politician, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, to which tip of the cap, you bad person. Um, uh, I have, I have deterred your ridiculous phrase and I'm using it for fun instead of to frighten poor idiots in the Duma. Right. And before we go down the definitional rabbit hole of whether everything we've talked about on the Liptony Hut is actually imaginary, let's, uh, let's flee uh, through this commercial and see uh, what might be up in the sky when we get to the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The plashing of frigid water against ice and the sight of a forlorn punctured balloon tell us that we're once more in the history hut. And this time around, we're there at the behest of Patreon backers. I feel like that, that site has told us a very specific thing. I mean, yes. generally, the History Hut is just like a plinth or something. Yes, exactly. Well, the, the History Hut is, is no one single thing. As you know, Ken, <laughs> history is capacious. Right. And, and therefore, an unending source of segments for this podcast. And of decor, as, apparently, as, for the hut. As Miko Arexinen uh, points out, when he asks, uh, what is the real, perhaps abhorrent, truth behind the Swedish North Pole expedition of 1897? Uh, and his uh, question then went on to uh, get us started on our research by uh, giving uh, a couple of points of the story. Uh, and so uh, this, as you would expect uh, of the Swedish North Pole expedition, our story starts 
1897, as it says on the tin. This was the uh, the balloonist Salomon August Andre flew the eagle, a, a, a balloon, to find the North Pole, and he went uh, with his intrepid engineer, Newt Frankel, and a young photographer named Nils Strindberg, and they set off on July 11th to uh, go to the North Pole in a hydrogen balloon, and everything worked. Oh, wait, I already gave away what happened in the, yeah, in the yeah. preamble. Speaking of the tin, <laughs> the tin was found on an ice floe 40 yes. years later. <laughs> so uh, I, I would like to pay tribute, as I sometimes do, to a beautifully turned sentence. Uh, and in the uh, article about this uh, by uh, the writer Nathan Trex on the Mental Floss site, not far uh, past the lead, he says, to understand what went wrong with Andre's mission, we first need to discuss early ballooning. So, Ken, tell us about early ballooning. Early ballooning was a disaster. It was a terrible thing. Basically, the earliest of ballooning was hot air, uh, and then rapidly people discovered that hot air was a terrible uh, uh, way to make your balloon go up because you couldn't control the furnace. You couldn't control the heat of the balloon. And eventually the air would, would give out and you'd, and you'd plummet to the earth. So they began to experiment with other methods of generating lifting gas, which of course, given the state of chemistry means hydrogen because you can't generate helium. It's an element. So they came up with better and worse ways of generating hydrogen, which <laughs> you will keep in mind does not solve the problem of can't control the fire and, uh, ballooning uh, would go up, and once you'd figured out how to make hydrogen, which you had by 1897, you were then faced with the fact that balloons just biffle along any old which way, depending on which way the wind is going, because they are literally a balloon. And uh, Solomon August Andre thought that he had solved this crucial problem of early ballooning, uh, not by putting a motor on the balloon to make it steerable, that boring old Baron uh, Count von Zeppelin way, but by dragging ropes along the ground to give it lodgement so that you could use a sail to change your balloon's direction. So you would slow the balloon down with the ropes so you'd be going slower than the wind, and then you would put the sail out to tack the balloon. And he thought that he could tack his balloon as many as 20 degrees of arc along its path. Right. And the verb here is thought, uh, yeah. because it turns out... And I'm not sure the verb was thought. I think the verb, <laughs> the verb may believed. be believed, <laughs> hallucinated, believed. desperately yeah. hoped... Uh, so many other verbs. Uh, certainly yeah. not tested and proved. No, did not proved. Yes. Uh, unproved. Yeah. So if you're going to pioneer a balloon navigational technique, or might I go wild and say any navigational technique, don't test it during your flight to the Arctic. No. As a proud Canadian, I'm going to say I know at least that about the, uh, the, the icy, uh, top of the world. Um, so 65 hours in, uh, the balloon crashes. And the, the problem is, is that the, guess what? The ropes did not help. <laughs> uh, the ropes, in fact, were a dangerous hindrance. And so what do you do when you have a dangerous hindrance connected to your, uh, to your balloon basket? Why you, uh, you cut them loose. You dump it out. You knock them down. You let them fall on the ice. Well, guess what? Those were also their ballast. Yeah. So like role playing characters, they solved one problem, giving themselves another problem, and suddenly the balloon is going way up too high into the sky. So 65, 65 hours in, uh, the balloon crashes, and there they are, stuck uh, in the Arctic. So they uh, they trudge around for a while, and other aspects, Ken, of this yeah. expedition were, were ill-planned. Yes. Uh, for example... Uh, the balloon leaked, and no one had tested, does our balloon leak? Which, again, is a thing I think you test before... You get in the balloon and go over the Arctic. And the first time uh, that they had the balloon in 1896, first of all, the drag ropes instantly failed. Second of all, the balloon leaked like a crazy thing. Third of all, the wind was blowing from the north, which will ruin your attempt to go north in a balloon super fast. And the person that he had in the balloon on that expedition, a guy named uh, Nils Gustav Eckholm, who was a experienced Arctic meteorologist and who had bossed uh, Salomon Andre around in a previous expedition, Eckholm did his own tests and discovered that Andre had been sneaking in and adding more hydrogen to the balloon at night on the ground to pass the buoyancy tests. And Eckholm said, I'm not going to be part of this. <laughs> If one third of the crew is already a traitor, that's bad odds in a balloon. And, uh, he bounced. And so that's why they hired 
the the heroic yet young and inexperienced Strindberg instead. Right. Uh, or actually, they had Strindberg on the first expedition. They hired uh, Frankel on the second expedition. And Frankel's qualifications were he could climb mountains. And uh, so he was strong like Bull, which would become handy on this balloon journey. Uh, they suddenly realized after the first one uh, turned out to have, you know, three scientists in a balloon was a great way to also die in a whole different way of exposure and not knowing anything. So they, they brought a, an athlete along the second time, which right. did not help. Although in retrospect, another way not to die of exposure would be to take warm clothes. Yes. Which they also, also would help. didn't do. Um, they did take champagne and caviar, as Miko points out. Yep, they took food for ballooning, just like you do in New Mexico if you're going there with your uh, beloved, and you and you go down and you ride a, a hot air balloon beautifully over the uh, gentle New Mexico green sward with a, a cigar champing man in a pickup truck following along to make sure you don't crash into anything. None of those things were available. Uh, New Mexico man pickup truck didn't have any of that. So uh, by early October, there uh, the ice under their uh, base camp uh, starts to break up, and uh, uh, we flash forward now to 1930. The sealing ship Bratvog uh, shows up, and they find a campsite. They find the journals of the uh, uh, expedition, uh, and uh, sadly, the remains of the three explorers and Strindberg's undeveloped film. And there's a, a tradition. There's been more than one Arctic or Antarctic expedition where uh, people's film has been found later to uh, uh, amazing sort of uh, time capsule. But it wasn't a cliche then. Right. Strindberg was a, was a genuine artist and pioneer. Everyone else is just, they're, they're just horning in on his bit. Yeah, I think that we need to point out that the balloon only stayed up in the sky for 10, for like 10 and a half hours. It wasn't even a long balloon ride. Then they were dragged along the ice over and over uh, for another 40 hours in which none of them got a wink of sleep, and then it finally crashed. And so they, they crashed, you know, basically two days after launch, and not very far away from uh, Spitsbergen, where they had taken off in the balloon right. in the first place. So Far enough to horribly die. Yeah, far enough to die. Yeah, you don't have to go very far away from Spitsbergen to be in a miserable, howling ice desert. But you were nowhere near the North Pole. They were just like a little bit away from the North Pole. Uh, or a little bit away from, from Spitzberg. So, uh, so that's the, the history as it is known. But, of course, yes. we've been charged with uh, discovering the real, perhaps, of the, the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, first of all, uh, longtime listeners or listeners who've heard episode 297 will think, was this walrus revenge? Was this, could this have been walrus revenge? And I think it could have, couldn't it? Yeah. So as depicted on our walrus revenge t-shirt at the Ken and Robin uh, merch store and tbubbook.com. I, I don't think there is anything in the journals about walrus revenge. Uh, and it would have been fairly early for walruses to start taking revenge because, of course, uh, our uh, assault on the, on the global environment of which the walruses, uh, uh, continue to object. Uh, had not yet really fully begun in, in earnest. So I think in well, first this instance, of all, first of all, the walruses would have known before most people. That that is true. Second of all, they probably had a lengthy you know beef with Sweden anyway, right? They would they would be mad that Scandinavians come up and hunt them. If there had been an Argentinian expedition, the walruses would have been cool. And then lastly, walruses are bullies, <laughs> and so if um uh, if if this you know goofball Swede and his buddies are are there bouncing along the ice. You know that the walruses would have been like, uh, we got to see where these guys land. This right. is going to be great. Well, I, I didn't say it wasn't walrus related, it, right. but not walrus. It may have been walrus aggression. Right. You, you just, you just think it can't be characterized as revenge. And I want to point out that also the, the absence of any record of a uh, walrus revenge in the surviving diaries and photographs. First of all, it means the walruses cover their tracks, which we know. Yes. And they know all, not to be photographed. Selman August Andre left a lot of stuff out of his diaries, such as, oh, we crashed into the water, and oh, um, my balloon is a fraud, and uh, the hydrogen keeps escaping, and oh, my drag ropes are a nightmare and a disaster, and I can't actually steer with them. He's an outlever, is what I'm trying to say. So d do not base our argument on whether or not something's in, in the journals. That is a road to fun ruining, and it's a road that I won't go down. Right. Well, certainly the, the real truth behind the expedition is certainly not in the journals because uh, the, it's a as we know here on this podcast, uh, the expedition supposedly to find the North Pole was in fact in search of sky cities because in uh, Sweden, 
in the decades prior to 1897, there was a rash of uh, Sky City sightings. So uh, in June of uh, 1882, uh, there was uh, steamships uh, seen up in the sky, and uh, at other times there was... Uh, uh, outlines of farms. So, and uh, and at another point, there was uh, a city. Now, uh, sky sightings, uh, sky cities are often uh, seen uh, up at higher latitudes. Sometimes uh, from Alaska, you can see the city of Bristol up in the sky. Uh, but here, in particular, they were looking for whatever upside down uh, sky city was uh, was threatening Sweden, uh, because uh, that part of the world there's a lot of warfare, and the last thing you want to do is uh, you know get. Uh, some sort of alien other dimension upside down city after you. So I think clearly what happened, whether the walrus instigated it or not, or sort of lured them in or tricked them or uh, had their walrus projection system projecting a sky city up there. But clearly what happened to the balloon is that once it, they let go of the ropes and went too high up, uh, they got punctured by one of the spires or steeples in the, in the sky city. And or what uh, if, what if the sky city, itself was riven in controversy. Um, and some of them were saying, let's reveal ourselves to Swedish balloonists. And the other sky Cityans were saying, no, that is against Magonian law. And when, uh, Andre comes up there, there's actually a, a, a fight. There's, there's a, there's a war between, um, Sweden and, and Magonia or, uh, the Magonians destroy his balloon and send him crashing to the earth, and then they send the walruses to cover it up. If I was looking, if, if I was a Sky City denizen and I was looking for uh, a, a willing partner in the Arctic, I, I would certainly uh, contact the walruses. Yeah, um, yeah, Sky Cities can be seen, you know, all kind of places, so it's a it's an ongoing problem, is what I'm saying. Right, but if the walruses are not are mercenaries, if they're, if they're being paid off in kippers, mm-hmm. uh, it is not revenge, but uh, entrepreneurialism. Right. Or, 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 at the, or at the very least, it is uh, doing well by doing good. Right. Uh, so your follow-up adventure can be uh, to, uh, you know, the Sky sky City appearances have not been as common of, of late. Uh, I think it's harder to perceive uh, them up there now that the, uh, due to light pollution. But that doesn't mean they're not there. That just means we can't see them as well. So uh, with or without uh, the whimsical and or sinister walruses, uh, your mission as adventurers could be to uh, uh, find uh, a way up to the Sky City that does not imperil you by having the transportation method be an 1897 hydrogen balloon. Right. And uh, one that also perhaps maintains your your stealth uh, approach better uh, than being a balloon. Yes. Um, or alternately, the uh, sighting of Magonians on Earth uh, there could be Magonian re- refugees after a uh, civil war up in the sky uh, could bring you up to the Arctic, and uh, or you could have a you know a your classic go find the the entry to the hollow earth, and you find the hollow earth is not in fact in the earth or anything to do with anything hollow, but is in fact the other realm is up in the sky, and uh, and then once you discover that again, you have the uh, transportation issue of of how to uh, how to get there, and we know it's a uh, uh, you know, an industrialized society because they have steamships and spires and, and uh, cities and uh, perhaps even Bristol, their own version of Bristol. But they might also have, you know, dinosaurs and pterodactyls and, and so forth. Uh, see previous discussion of Hollow Earth. Right. And um, uh, uh, pterodactyls, uh, again, they, they live in the sky. So what better place than a yeah. sky city? And, and they have convenient balloon puncturing beaks. Yes. Um, they're the walruses of the sky, paleontologists call them. Yes. So now that we've uh, explained what really happened there, uh, be sure, kids, to go and uh, write all about that on your next history exam while we uh, play this exciting commercial message. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Keep this podcast from dying in a frozen waste by joining such Patreon backers as... Steve K. Dan Simons. Neil Dalton. Neil Kaplan. And Oren Gishuri. It's time once again, uh, in fact, to conclude our recent series of Ken and Robin Recycle audio segments. Uh, we've been presenting our panels on Robert W. Chambers and then the Yellow King Mythos from Carcosicon. And uh, this is our wrap-up, and we are now picking up from a general discussion of how people have taken the basic elements of the uh, Yellow King Mythos, as suggested by Chambers, for short stories, and then built them out into things, uh, with an example being the way that I elaborated uh, from my short stories in New Tales of the Yellow Sign into the Yellow King role-playing game. The other thing is that uh, the Yellow King stories uh, uh, propose an obvious plot device that Chamber never used, mm-hmm. but that everybody always uses, which is, what if the play is about to be staged? Mm-hmm. Because we call it obvious for a reason, right. um, in that that gives you a, a great plot line, particularly in a role-playing adventure, the thing for your characters to do, and a clock, you know, a ticking clock that's the the play is going to be staged at 8 p.m. on such and such a day, and you've got to find out that it's happening, and you have to find out where it's happening, figure out uh, you, all the players can have their meeting uh, in which they sit around and, and figure out how to sabotage this play. And it's just uh, such an obvious note that it was something I wanted to avoid striking <laughs> when I then uh, took it to the... Because the GM can do that on their own. They don't right, need yeah, me they to don't write... Need Robin. They don't need me to write that adventure for them. And so the, the next step... When uh, Simon Rogers and Kat Tobin of uh, Pelgrane got together and asked me to create a role-playing game based on the, the stories in that anthology, was then how to build that out. And so I decided to take a, sort of an ambitious approach to that and say, well, let's have uh, a game that is set in four different settings in four different time periods and play with that whole idea so that if you... Uh, have players who want to commit to a long-term campaign, they can see their characters refracted over time. So that when you start out playing uh, the 1895 characters in Paris, which is a sort of obvious fun setting, which is a, a you know a great period in history full of fascinating characters and and color and fun, and then all of a sudden you're plunged into this alternate reality war in the second sequence and the wars, and you establish a connection between your characters fighting in the French uh, loyalist forces against a uh, nebulous uh, set of antagonists that you then uh, determine who they were based on what you did in the previous uh, section, and you create connections to your previous characters so that you are building callbacks into the game that make it feel like what you did in Paris is still relevant. Uh, So not only are they thematically connected, but that you as players are building your own uh, connections. Then you uh, fast forward to the present day, but not our current reality, but rather the reality of aftermath. And that's uh, the, in, in part because games about fighting oppression while the totalitarian government is in place are very challenging because it's uh, constricting. You're just turtling and being afraid of uh, being caught. My idea there was, okay, the repressive government that I scrapped in the short stories has now fallen. And you are among the ex-insurgents who helped bring about the revolution that pushed them out of power. And so your main focus now is what do we do? Not just what do we do as people, but what do we do as a society? And what is our role as heroes of the revolution in building the new government, which is always much harder than blowing up the old government? Um, and how do you want to do that? What 
you know, politics has been upended by this weird supernatural force for a hundred years. The party system is gone. And this also enables a way to explore the ideas and mechanisms of politics while completely blowing up the politics that we are familiar with in this world so that uh, players will bring their own personal inflections to it. But there's no Republican Party. There's no Democrats. The, uh, the arguments are different. And even uh, the continent has been re- reshaped. That The United States is now a much, it's a smaller area. And there's uh, a, 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 what I turned into a utopian Afrocentric nation uh, in the South. And uh, California is its own separate thing. But that you are playing with politics without making it present-day politics. Um, And then finally what you do in the game is in the fourth segment, you uh, play the same characters, uh, not in that reality, but in our realities. And you take a step down so that the guy who was the government lethal chamber repairman is now the owner of a weed dispensary. Uh, or depending on what jurisdiction you want to play him in, or maybe he's a low-level weed dealer, or the the you know the guy who is the sort of strategic planner of the insurgent cell is now a security guard, um, and uh, that segment is called "This Is Normal Now," and this is uh, the one that enables you to bring in adventures that recall the the various modern stories in the collection, like distressing notifications, and deal with. Uh, Yellow King mythology as they relate to uh, elements of the uh, the present day, and so that is an was an exercise then in beginning to take the sort of slim referential details first in chambers, and then uh, in the, the stories that I'd written, which again, like any story, just tells you enough about the world to tell that story. But the trick about role playing, and I think the reason why role playing eats up continuities and mythologies and uh, really thrives on them is that uh, that enables you to answer questions for the because the uh, what GMs want from the a setting designer is answers to questions that uh, uh, you know so what does it mean in this in the aftermath world uh, what where is law enforcement at uh, if I when the adventurers want to go and talk to the cops what does it mean that there's cops nine months after the revolution so I have to explain that. So you wind up then creating a lot of detail about a world that you would never necessarily put into a story because you are now looking at what player characters are are going to do, and you're looking at them within the context of of the sorts of actions that they take, and even the investigative uh, aspect of of gumshoe play. Um, And so I, I wound up going through the short stories, uh, into building up the world through role playing and then back into fiction with a novel called uh, The Missing and the Lost. And that is set in the aftermath, uh, setting. It as a sequel to a short story in the book that is, it's called uh, A Boat Full of Popes is the name of that story. Um, and it's the one that is the most clearly an iconic hero story with adventurer, uh, competent adventurer characters overcoming, uh, uh bad guys and therefore the obvious template, uh, for uh, a role-playing setting, but also something that I needed to provide more of an example to people. There's no TV show that I can show you uh, yet uh, set in the world of Aftermath, but here, here's a novel that's another example of the kind of stuff that you do in a group of, uh, of adventurers. We are currently at about a quarter till, so if you uh, have questions requiring our simple insight, maybe this is an excellent time to throw a couple of them our way. Or we can keep talking. <laughs> this is not an idle threat. <laughs> okay, so uh, aside from works that you've authored yourselves, what's sort of your recommended reading list for people interested? I mean, you begin with Chambers, obviously. You read The King in Yellow, uh, at, at the very least the four stories in one poem, um, because they are two masterpieces, two near masterpieces and a fine poem. Um, and then you can read as much more chambers as you want. Uh, or can stand. Or can stand. Uh, mileage varies. I like chambers better than Robin does, but other people like him actually. Uh, and so uh, it is It is perhaps uh, worth looking at. And then I would definitely recommend uh, hunting down uh, an anthology called, um, uh, I believe it's called The Rise of the Yellow King, uh, but it's 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 the anthology that, uh, or the uh, the Haster Mythos actually from 
Chaosium has a lot of stuff. Uh, it has, oh, a thing that I should have mentioned, uh, James Blish, the great science fiction author, did an attempt to recreate the entire play, The King in Yellow, in a story called More Light, in which a character is reading uh, The King in Yellow during a weird electrical failure. And believe it or not, being James Blish, he makes that work. Um, but it's really an excuse just to write The King in Yellow. But if you uh, get the Hester cycle from Chaosium, that has most of the sort of earlier uh, Chambersian uh, core works. It has, I think, three of the King in Yellow stories by Chambers. It has the beer stories that Chambers took the words Carcosa and Hester from. And it has uh, River of Night's Dreaming by the great Carl Edward Wagner and More Light by James Blish. So start with that, start with Chambers, and obviously start with Robin's uh, New Tales of the Yellow Sign, because that will let you skip ahead to the new century. And look at John Tynes' essays in Delta Green and Delta Green Countdown about uh, Astor. It's and that's one of the interesting features of looking at the Yellow King as its own mythos rather than as a subsection of uh, Lovecraft is that if you do that, it's still a pretty young area that not a lot of people have explored, which is something that you want as a creator. Um, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, back in the '90s when I. Uh, contributed a story to uh, a zombie anthology, which was a weird thing nobody had done. Yeah. <laughs> there is no short story collections about zombies. And so uh, All Flesh Must Be Eaten, which was a role-playing tie-in, then went on to become a, a really solid seller uh, in the conventional book market long before Walking Dead and those other things. So you can really see how quickly uh, a... Uh, and that was not a new concept, certainly at that time, uh, Romero zombies were still part of the zeitgeist, but the idea that you would then uh, create a, um, a mytho- not so much a, mytholo- a shared mythology, but rather a, uh, a potent uh, subgenre that then there would be the idea that everybody should write a whole bunch of zombie stories and you should do Marvel uh, superhero zombies and this kind of zombie and that kind of zombie was something that and went from zero to a hundred. Like, an endless series of 99 cent Kindles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which my wife reads uh, obsessively. Um, yeah, so who's got another question? Jason? For a moment, did you consider a Muppet show, King and Yellow crossover, with you play being performed from uh, stage and only dealing with Muppets backstage? <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not able to consider anything else now, <laughs> and it would explain gritty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like backstage. Kermit is slowly devolving into like slivers of felt, and, and the, the terrible thing is, you, the, or he's, the, the or horrible he's revelation. Into the harbor master creature. The, the, well, the, the horrible revelation at the end. You see the hands. Yeah, no puppet, no, no puppet. puppet. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, the notion of a backstage. I mean. Stories about backstage at the theater are always better than stories about what's in front of the theater, I find. And certainly there is a great story to be written somewhere about a backstage of, of a troupe that is attempting to perform it. And you could write it even as a as a farce, where for one reason or another they just can never get the damn it's, play. It's, it's noises off. Right, you're exactly. Just, you, right. You're just, you see the backstage and it's, it's just called masks hor- off. Right, and all you hear is the, the horrible <laughs> shrieking of the audience. <laughs> right. Uh, and they're wondering what's going on in front of the... Uh, <laughs> no, I have to write Three Men on the Miskatonic before I can write that. <laughs> Do my, my part for Jerome K. Jerome fandom. <laughs> uh, yeah, speaking of uh, resurrections. So, Ken, do you have uh, closing thoughts on uh, where you think that uh, the project of turning these stories into a broader shared mythology is, is going or is going to go? I mean, we're beginning to see the Yellow King, the King in Yellow, sort of begin to filter into the geek. Uh, oh, I guess we should mention True Detective. We should. Yeah, actually, that's a huge yeah. thing. I mean, that's 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 the that's the sort of the uh, the thing that sort of woke it up in the in the nerd mainstream and caused the sales of my short story collection on Amazon Kindle to go way up. It's a spike, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, created the uh, indifferently uh, annotated King in Yellow by S.T. Joshi that I. Uh, found halfway through my process, was briefly worried at, and then laughed myself silly for the rest of the hour. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, in True Detective, uh, writer slash plagiarist Nick Pizzolatto came up with the idea of repackaging Thomas Ligotti as a noir detective story, and then 
discovered, as he had already written uh, the Stone Court and the Cypress King as his mythical figures in that first draft, discovered the work of Chambers and said, ah, more work I don't have to do, and replaced the global search and replace with the King in Yellow and Carcosa. And again, because of the genius of Chambers in not over-defining it, Pizzolatto contributes yet another version of the King in Yellow, and because the uh, story matter is about sexual degradation, it even sort of fits in with Chambers' concerns about decadence. Uh, For example, uh, the inciting incident in uh, the story of the Yellow Sign is that an artist kisses his model, and now they have to be boyfriend-girlfriend, where previously he just painted her naked and everything was cool. So... From to go from that to the sort of true detective uh, multi generational pedophilia ring is connection, but a change in the same way that the King Yellow keeps sort of ringing its changes on on, on the concerns of uh, the individual artist. So uh, true detective blasts Carcosa and King Yellow out, incidentally spoiling it for me because everyone I knew sent me text messages and emails saying, "Oh my God, you have to watch True Detective. King Yellow is in it." And that sort of awakened it into uh, the sphere. And I, I think that the ability now to sort of go back and look, and there's a zillion, uh, P, uh, you know, uh, Kindle instant uh, reprints of, uh, of Chambers out there. There's uh, some ungodly number of them have been uh, put together just since uh, True Detective. So the, so the meme is seeded, but it's very much in the same way that I think Cthulhu was in the 60s, that there's a, a small devoted cult that knows it, a larger audience that's sort of familiar with it, but it has not exploded out. And I think that the possibilities uh, uh, creatively for for uh, for the King and Yellow myth- mythology only go farther because, in a way, we are in the world that Chambers both foresaw and hated. That decadence has uh, overturned the the castles of, of order and uh, bourgeois value. Uh, everything is, is is gone to hell, and uh, nothing means anything anymore. And in a way now, we are so far into that channel that even uh, perfectly uh, affable and delightful postmodern uh, friendlies such as Robin are a little bit shocked and terrified themselves. So a myth that scares everybody instead of half the population is a better myth than one that only scares half the people. And I think that's where we are with the King in Yellow, where you can use that imagery to mean a lot of different uh, horrors. And I think that makes it a, a better, more effective imagery. And, and True Detective uses... Uh, chambers in the in the way that the other people we've talked about in that it, it maintains its uh, idea of a little sliver of it that you see that suggests something much wider. So right. uh, you uh, just get little bits and pieces. You never go in and see a scene where they figure out who the cult is and somebody explains the, the this and then that. And the final bit uh, is you know he sees uh, you know Carcosa. And the uh, meaning of that is uh, left uh, somewhat open, I like to think, so that the actual <laughs> meaning is not one I have to confront because that was stupid. Um, <laughs> and uh, but but I think that's a, another example of the way forward. It would be uh, would have been interesting if the follow ups had maintained that uh, element of uh, noir with an element of the supernatural instead of uh, not doing that. Instead of not doing that. <laughs> Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Art Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com.
It's time once more to wend our way up the creepy cobweb stairs, where we will pass the portrait of Madame Blavatsky. We'll give her a little wave, but oh, she's still glowering at us. But we're not discouraged, because we're going to head on in to the Edwardian parlor, where waits the consulting occultist. And this time, the consulting occultist consults uh, not one, but two Patreon backers, uh, original questioner Chris Kelly and seconder of question JT. Chris says, I keep running into occult references to Buenos Aires. A copy of the Necronomicon, the book The St. Perpetuous Club of Buenos Aires by Eric Carlson, and at least one Peronist who is into the occult. So what's the eldritch skinny on the city of good air? Ken, what did you find in your research uh, into the occult and the uh, city of uh, tango in uh, Argentina? Well, there's a couple of facets that are sort of working in its favor. And uh, Lovecraft, God bless him, kind of predates, he doesn't quite predate, but he predates awareness of those facets in the, in the West. So he, when he puts the Necronomicon in the University of Buenos Aires, not weirdly enough, the National Library of Buenos Aires, but whatever, he is sort of seeing the, this wild area that, that, that begins to open up basically right about the moment that he's writing that down in 1927, which Jorge Luis Borges, the sort of central figure of all fun slash weirdness in the Argentine is going to orbit around. Borges at this time is beginning his literary career and is also working as a librarian. Guess what? At that library. And so um, he has got a global reputation as an author of the strange of the sort of the thought experiments and the boundaries between the real and the, and the written that sort of draw, I think the attention of, uh, of, of people outside Argentina to Buenos Aires in, in that way. But of course, uh, Buenos Aires is a large city by itself, which means it's going to have its own occult underground regardless. And because it is so very European and so not particularly what we think of as, as, uh, Hispanic as, as sort of, it's very different from Mexico City, for example. There's almost no native, uh, Argentinian, uh, presence there. It, it's, it's European colonists almost entirely, very similar to cities in America, uh, in, in, in the United States. So, that connection to the, to Europe means that whenever there's a European occult frenzy, some of it is going to splash over into Argentina. And in some cases, if occult weirdos are fleeing to Argentina because, I don't know, their side lost a world war, um, they are going to, uh, drift up in Argentina as well. So, uh, for example, uh, Juan Perón, the dictator of Argentina, who was playing footsie with Hitler and Mussolini through the whole war, Turns out, uh, as though it were a a freaking uh, compass, to also have been fascinated by the occult, and uh, he attempted to contact San Martin in a seance, for example, San Martin, the liberator of Argentina, and that, among other things, got him up the nose of the Catholic Church. Uh, Perón had he was much more into the socialism uh, as a, as a fascist goes than uh, say Hitler was, and so the Catholic Church didn't like him already, and they really didn't like him. Uh, for that, and he had uh, common occult interests with a lot of people, including his third wife, Isabel Perón. She had been a uh, housekeeper for a family of spiritual healers. So this is, I mean, she picked it up, and he meets her in exile, in fact, after he gets bounced out of Argentina the first time. And then when he comes back, one of his cronies, a guy named Jose Lopez uh, Rega, is brought along as well, and he begins, for example, as the, uh, basically, you know, private secretary of the Perones in Exile, and is also an occultist, he, a professional occultist, he wrote like a, a dozen books on the topic, and he had the nickname El Brujo, the Warlock. Uh, so, uh, quite a fellow, uh, big fan of telepathy and astrology, he could cast horoscopes, he um, uh, was a big interest, uh, sort of a the post-American theosophists. He, had, he believed very much in in uh, the cosmic fire and aliens in the hollow earth and all, all kinds of other good stuff. So an ideal person, you would say, to make the minister of social welfare, welfare in Argentina. But that's what they did. Uh, so there was all kinds of stuff going on with the Perones in their circle, and it spilled out throughout the 70s. And again, as I think we've talked before, the 70s are another... Great era for uh, elliptony and nonsense globally, and they are certainly 
part of that uh, that same uh, sphere as well. My favorite occultist of uh, Buenos Aires uh, and uh, favorite for a bunch of reasons, including not a fascist, yeah, is that's very that's very key. Yeah, that's that's one of my criteria for evaluating people. Um, uh, is uh, Zul Salar, who uh, today I think we would refer to as a multimedia artist, but at the time was a painter who did a lot of things. He uh, was born Oscar Augustine Alejandro Schultz Solari. And he took the name Zul Solar because that was a lot to write on the bottom of a painting and because it meant light of the sun. And he uh, was born in 1897. He died in 1963. And he was, uh, you mentioned Borges. He was a very close friend of Borges for a long time, part of the same artistic uh, circle. And he was like a, a generation or half a generation older than Borges. So he sort of looked up to him as an older uh, pal and uh, artistic confederate, but he uh, went to Europe in the in the teens, where he met Picasso and uh, Medigliani. There's another callback for you. Um, and uh, also in 1924 in Europe, meets uh, Alistair Crowley, who, uh, as as he was wont to do, whenever he met a new interesting person, thought, "Can I uh, seduce and vampirize this person into being my dog's body?" But guess what? Zul Salar had other ideas, and so he Zul Salar, having actual talent, did not need <laughs> yes. Crowley. Yes, and and perhaps a bit of common sense and, and radar as to who is dangerous. So he goes back uh, to Argentina and joins the uh, loose affiliation of artists and, he's and writers. Like, I'm already buddies with Picasso. I don't need any more egomaniacal ruiners in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I, I and I think he, he met Picasso. I don't think they were like running buddies or anything okay. like that. But because his true companions are in Buenos Aires and they're called right. the Florida Group and it includes Borges and Borges' sister and other uh, writers and painters. Um, and if you look at his paintings, you will immediately think, oh, Dreamlands. This is what he's painting. He must be a, a dream hound. Uh, as uh, you know, there's uh, one of the areas that I didn't tackle when we created Dream Hounds in Paris was other surrealists and other places elsewhere in the world because it was hard to have them do the Paris part of that uh, rather than just show up in the dreamlands. But definitely... You can tell that he was hanging out, uh, you know, he, if he continued to be pals with Picasso, it was in the dreamlands because you uh, see his paintings and there's like uh, floating cities and, uh, uh, you know, speaking of callbacks, many of them suspended on uh, balloons, which are clearly from the sky cities above Sweden and not from regular Sweden. And mm-hmm. there's winged horses and pyramids and snakes and half airplane, half people, people um, and arcane symbols and stuff. He was an astrologer, he was into the I Ching, and he uh, created a tarot deck, and he created a bunch of stuff. He invented two languages. Yeah, they had a big, long, productive life. Yes. There was Neo-Criollo, which was his fusion of Portuguese and Spanish, and he developed that enough that he actually spoke it uh, to people, and I don't know whether how many people understood what he was saying, but I bet they understood either the Portuguese or the Spanish half, or both if they knew both languages. Um, and he also invented something sort of Esperanto-like called a panlingua, uh, which he described as being inspired by mathematics, music, the visual arts, and astrology. So he invented a magical language. The Florida group, the writers in the group, often wrote uh, in an autobiographical way and wrote their friends into each other's stories. For his stories you wouldn't think are autobiographical, but it turns out a lot of them are. And so that library that has the Necronomicon in it is... The Library of Babel, people. But Zul Salar appears as a as a minor character in Tlon Ukbar Orbas Tertius. And he uh, usually shows up as a mystic or an astrologer. Uh, he invented a new kind of piano. He was a game designer. Yeah, he was a game designer. He uh, invented uh, a version of chess, uh, which was alternately called either non-chess or the pan game. And it was not just meant to be a version of chess where the rules constantly changed underfoot. It was a mystical spiritual metaphor uh, that was supposed to bring other dimensions into play. And uh, according to uh, one account, its indeterminate rules were simultaneously a group of musical notes, a dictionary for the creation of new languages, and a way to ask, what are we playing? Uh, and so uh, uh, he's a... a fascinating uh, version of a sort of an occult artist. And uh, uh, he also dreamed of uh, flying cities, of floating cities as a solution to overpopulation. So uh, once again, he has a, a benign vision of the of the sky cities that we're referring to uh, back in the history. Hub. 
So, um, yeah, uh, Zul Salar, reason enough to have an occult group. Uh, he's buddies with the other reason that you have an occult group. And, um, uh, both of them are basically attempting to dodge the attention of the third reason you have an occult group, uh, to one degree or another, uh, the Perones. And I guess, uh, is, is there more to, to Buenos Aires? I mean, obviously a deep dive into the history of Buenos Aires produces all manner of, of exciting, uh, a backstory and fun. It's likewise, a deep dive into Borges. Writing gives you nothing but occult secret societies because a lot of them, uh, in the sort of post Stevensonian fashion turn up in his work. Uh, you're, you're, you're spoiled for choice, really. Yeah. Mm. And if you want to do a day trip, there's like a Michele and Bembe out in the Pampas. So right. You want to, if you, you want to throw in a side dinosaur in between all your cult adventures, there you go. Right. Uh, well, on that note, as soon as you throw in a gratuitous dinosaur. Right. You know that we've reached the end of, of yet another podcast episode, but uh, I bet we'll have uh, another one coming up with and or without dinosaurs uh, one mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Blanket this podcast in your good air. Join such patron backers as... Peter Williamson. Raphael Pabst. Thomas Edward. Chris Lydon. And Andrew Collins. Summer is t-shirt season, and the Ken and Robin merch store is here to help at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered three dozen of our latest design, Valhalla Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>